0: It's a delightful joy and privilege to be assembled together today. On this first day of the week, this precious day recognizes the Lord's Day in Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. I'd like to take just a note of personal privilege on the part of our family to express to this congregation that certainly a, a major moment occurred for our family yesterday with uh, Christy and Matt's wedding. But you were so kind and so gracious in your compliments, and the work that you invested to help make that day go so smoothly. We would again like to express our thanks to you, and Christy and Matt certainly will will, uh, share those sentiments with you themselves. But we just wanted to go ahead and say that today. It is the case that as those major moments occur in life, it certainly gives one pause and it gives one opportunity to reflect. Today, interestingly enough, as we come to the sixth chapter of the book of John, we uh, consider a lesson entitled, as you can tell, Belief in the Bread of God. These initial comments, I hope, will move us toward the appreciation of the major elements in the lesson. In our reading through the Word of God this year, we've arrived at about the three-quarters mark, roughly 75% of the total. And we now are in the book of John in the New Testament. And you'll notice that these comments perhaps are immediately in order. As we make comparison or at least think about the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, those first four books of the New Testament, we find such major considerations. You'll notice some things are common. Quite often a miracle may occur in many of the gospel accounts, but immediately John seems to be so different. You'll notice that there is not one single parable in the book of John, not one. Twenty-one chapters and not a single reference to a parable. Interestingly enough, there's also a very, very few miracles. John's emphasis, his objective seems to be different than what would demand the presentation of those things. You do notice, though, with me that there are many long discourses, conversations in which we see Jesus personally interacting. There was that state status in chapter 3 of his discussion with Nicodemus in chapter 4, his meeting with a woman at the Samara, at the well there in Sychar. That's just to name two of others that could have been mentioned. I would also ask that you notice as we continue our journey through that book that John clearly casts a strong element of emphasis, doesn't he, upon the last elements in the Lord's life in the flesh. The book of John only has 21 chapters, and yet the last 10 chapters of that book Encompass the last six days of his life in the flesh. Not only that, again, only 21 chapters and the last nine of them are the last 24 hours of his life in the flesh. No wonder John wishes for they of his day and ourselves to know as well about the features, the attributes of Jesus the Messiah and those events surrounding his death. We shall come to that in due course. Today, to prepare us for it, what about belief in the bread of life? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 state the objective and aim of that book like this, and I'd like us to develop it. Truly, many things, many other things are written that you and I recognize He did that were not chosen to be recorded. But these are written, He said, that you might believe, that you might believe Twenty centuries roughly have come and gone since our Lord, of course, lived upon this earth. But yet the attribute of belief, the characteristic of the heartfelt matter response, let's discuss that today and think about it in light of the sixth chapter of this book. Belief and the bread of God. These comments are those which I would encourage you to consider first. The features that develop in this chapter follow on the heels of the only miracle, the only one that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. The feeding of the 5,000 is presented in Matthew chapter 14, in Mark as well, and also we read of it in Luke and then again here in John. Surely that highlights for us the uniqueness and the lessons that might be obtainable from it. You remember the scene with me rather well. Jesus was often busy in teaching and in sharing the blessed news and often healing others. And we appreciate on this occasion a large multitude was there with the Lord and the close of evening was gathering about Him. Jesus was somewhat concerned about the safety and well-being of those that are gathered and thus He sought for provision for them. He was afraid they might faint if they were sent away having had no meal. Jesus first asked of Philip, about the character of what was available. And after some conversation, it was finally discovered by Andrew that there was a lad that had five loaves and two fish. And we noticed that Jesus gave commandment, "'Have the people sit down in hundreds and in fifties.'" He, as the people sat, Jesus brought that meager amount of provision. He blessed it, and He provided for every one of them. The text says they all had plenty. They were able to be satisfied on such a small amount doesn't that, that immediately set before us the fact that our master our Lord is in fact the master of quantity he can take what seemingly is so little and multiply abundantly to where it can satisfy so many how many other times in the Lord's ministry did he perform something like this he fed four thousand with such a meager amount as well We also remember the marvelous matter touching the lives of those who were motivated and moved by that which He set before them. As you think about all of those things, you might also notice there was sufficient amount that even fragments, the leftovers were gathered up. Might I ask you to appreciate rather quickly and somewhat amazingly what the people did next. In John 6 verse 15, Immediately after the provision of all these things and that which the Lord had made available, they were ready to take Him and make Him king. Maybe that still says so much about often that which is the human way of doing things. You feel our stomachs. We're happy to do whatever you want us to do. We've had presidential candidates and others that seemingly have operated on a motivation like that. Here, they were prepared on the basis of nothing more than this. If you can feed us and take care of us like this, we'll be happy to do whatever you'd like. You'll notice that the Lord's interest wasn't in being made a king like that. He wanted just their souls, not their stomachs. He wanted far more impressiveness related to what their dedication would be than just having to satisfy their appetites physically. It might be, in light of all of that, we have an impressive lesson given to us in verse 27. I'd like to ask you to read it. John 6, verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. The Lord didn't say for you and me not to provide for our families. He wasn't by any means asserting that you and I need not to make effort physically to make sure we have food. There should be nothing taken from this to command us not to raise a garden. The context and what the immediate matter set before us is the Lord was encouraging them of that day and us as well to set our sights above those things physically in which that always and only is what motivates us and moves us and guides us. Life has so much more spiritually to offer than that. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but notice how he finished it. Verse 27, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Is it the case then that you and I use this sojourn, this life in the flesh, to make preparation for that life? which is eternal, this life is not going to last in this flesh very long. Ask anyone who has a few years on them, they'll tell you how quickly and fleetingly life passes. It seems only yesterday we watch our youngsters born, and before you know it, we're giving them away in marriage. Before you know it, we see other attributes of ourselves as the hairs turn color and the wrinkles on the face appear, Life has a way of moving on where Jesus says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Is the concourse of your life and mine directed in such a way that we appreciate the sweetness and the blessing and reward of pursuing the meat that is unto everlasting life? In Matthew chapter 25, verse number 46 The closing verse to that chapter, the Master Himself made reference to the righteous going away into everlasting life. Life which always has its provision. Life which always has its abundance. Life which is fully centered on Jesus Christ. In many ways, the closing thought to that is provided in Revelation 21, where therein we have a picturesque view, a dramatic scene in which we find the righteous, those that have in fact labored here but have passed on to a reward, we find that they are able to partake of that which God and the Son and the Spirit offer around the clock all the time. That's genuine provision, isn't it? Maybe in light of that, we close that slide by noticing this interesting lesson about Jesus' kingship. May you and I then have a desire to serve Him, not because physically of what He offers, but because spiritually what He makes available. Forgiveness, peace, tranquility, wholeness. In Philippians 4, verses 6 and following, we especially notice that the peace of God, which passeth all understanding... "...shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord." Maybe with a backdrop, a background attached to this which we have seen, Jesus transitions this discussion amazingly into what we see in verses 22 and following. For you'll notice immediately here, this is the following day, but yet the same thoughts and the same ideas we find approached in such a beautiful fashion. After all, we notice that the people now chased Jesus on the next day. He had fed them the day before and they wanted some more. You see, we all like to eat. And they were interested in coming to one for whom they could find provision without having to pay for it. Jesus made available all of these things. They chased the next day to see what else they might could find from Him. That's when He challenged them, Don't labor for the meat that perishes. He had a deeper message. He had a more profound truth. Perhaps in light of that, you'll notice that now the discussion turns, using that same idea of bread, to the manna that the children of Israel enjoyed. In verses 30 and following, we find that mention is made about the bread that God gave then and how that the Lord uses that for a discussion like this. Please notice the conversation, and thankfully, it's brief, but it reads like this. In verse number 28, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? After the Lord challenged them to not labor for the meat that perishes, but rather to pursue that which was of God, they then asked, What is it, Lord, what is it, Jesus, that we then should do that we might work the works of God? A very fair question, isn't it? The Lord's reply is this one, verse 29. It's what Brother Ted read a moment ago. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye, might be- or that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. We find these comments. Please notice the development if you would. Jesus Himself referred to belief as a work. Here directly before you and me, the appreciation of our understanding, the Lord Himself said then, that belief falls under a category of the works of God. This is what they were to do. There are so many times in the Word of God we encounter concepts that remind us of that one. I bring that up and mention it for the following reason. The human family has struggled with this concept for centuries seeing an antagonism between works on the one hand and belief on the other. Works on the one hand and faith on the other. As though they're distinct, as though they're separable and ne'er the twain shall meet. And yet in this occasion, fairly early in the Lord's ministry, He made observation of the fact that when they asked, What then are we to do that we might work the works of God? He said to believe. And forevermore He intertwined belief and works, and in the plan of God they cannot be separated. In the provision of what God has before us, the two cannot be separated to the point that they are near to be seen together. Consider some of the other attributes of what you and I see in the Word of God. In James chapter 2 beginning in verse 17, We remember there in that famous refrain relative to the matter of works and faith. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Isn't it true then that the works, when one does that which the Lord has commanded, one is merely demonstrating his confidence, his assurance, and his faithfulness in the greatness and the provision of God. Not only that, consider the example of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. But then in the inspired commentary of Hebrews eleven seven, 7, it says, Noah acted in faith, constructed an ark to the saving of his house. And thus, when Noah did what God commanded, that was the matter of his faith. Today, faith and works, as they did in the first century, they go inseparably together. No wonder then at the bottom, when you and I contemplate the stumbling that ideas like this have caused, we almost recoil in confusion. How could it have been so difficult for people to understand? In fact, I would ask you to note this development. Some have used ideas like this one as it touches the subject of belief. And it says, well, that then excludes baptism. If the works of God involve belief, Jesus didn't mention baptism there, and therefore, how should that be viewed? In fact, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 bring it together like this. When you and I see the nature, the description of what Paul put before the Ephesian brethren, he said to them, that you and I are appreciate that by faith or by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Some might then state, if it's not of works, doesn't that exclude baptism? In light of what you and I have just studied, if it's not of works, that excludes belief too. How can one possibly be right before God without belief? That's absurdity and nonsense in the highest order, isn't it? We understand then that when it talks about works and not being of works, that's a describing a state of affairs in which you and I strive to be right with God based only on our efforts apart from His provision of the blood of Christ. To put that differently, none of us have any right to brag before God. None of us have any right to boast to the point and say we've deserved the matter of Christ, that we deserve His blood, that we deserve the opportunity for heaven. None of us will ever be in that position, but rather by faith. We understand what He has done for us, what He continues to do through us, and it is as we manifest our faith by doing what He says, those are the kind of works that that belief generates. Sometimes today we know well in families at least a principled comparison to that. Granddad or grandmother or maybe our parents give us statements about certain things and maybe at the time due to our youth and our lack of wisdom we don't understand the reason for it. But perhaps a few years later we come to realize there was mighty good reason for those words and then we understand, then we appreciate We notice here in this particular scenario and setting that Jesus told them, well, that these works was what God demanded. That would naturally produce the other things that would go with it. Maybe the next slide as we develop that thought like this. It helps us see that what comes from the Lord as He describes all of these things, the people took His words in an incorrect way. Isn't it true there still can be misunderstanding in the mind of some? They misappreciate the context. When the Lord mentioned works, they attached it to bread, and they then were seeking for some physical bread again. That kind of bread was not what was on the Lord's mind. Jesus said in verse 35, I am the bread of life. The Lord was then and continues to be that which provides nourishment, sustainability, and the understanding of what makes our life here all that it needs and can be. When there's life that's not directed according to Jesus, when there's life that isn't centered on Him, it's a life that's lost its way. It's a life that's dangerously misdirected. It's life that's traveling the wrong way on a one-way street. We pass through this way one time. Life can only be lived once. There are no U-turns to go back and do it again. As we pass through it, may we then in wisdom realize, I, Jesus said, am the bread of life. We then need to partake of Him, allow Him to be the guiding thrust, direction, and objective, and appreciate that all the promises of this chapter will then be ours forevermore to enjoy. As you look at some of the things I would ask you to notice, the people ask about the manna of the Old Testament. Jesus had to plainly tell them that was provided by God, but it was not the bread of God. For Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Today, the question that personally comes then to you and me is this. Are we allowing the devil to bring other things in our lives to encompass major portions of it so that Jesus is taking a back seat? I'm reminded of those bumper stickers, and I'm sure you've seen them too, that says Jesus is my co-pilot. Friend, that's not a good statement. He needs to be the pilot, and I'm in the back seat following. All of us need to be in a position like that one. We are not co-pilots with Him if we're following the teaching of the Word of God. Is it not told to us in Revelation fourteen four? Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. If I'm sitting in front of Him or beside Him, I'm not following Him. We need to follow Him. It is told to us in Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20, He is our forerunner. We aren't running beside Him, we're running behind Him as He leads us into the pathways of everlasting peace and goodness. Maybe those thoughts challenge us with those things that come next, which really fulfill the last section of John chapter 6. You and I have noticed then that following Christ is paramount. Nothing else in life is as important as that. There are many things that occupy our thinking, our time, and our attention, but nothing else even comes close to making sure that we're right with God through Christ. For if we've missed that one, we've missed everything. Look at how Jesus says that many times over the closing few verses, and we won't nearly read all of them, but I would at least ask you to notice some of them. John chapter 6, verse 53 Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. That's a very stern statement, isn't it? He here makes a recognition, a comparison to His blood and His flesh, and He asserts that except or unless you eat that flesh and drink that blood, you have no life in you. Some have pondered and wondered whether or not that was a reference at least in a veiled way, to to the sacraments, the characteristics of the communion, the Lord's Supper. It is not a reference to that. This is a reference to a much deeper principle, at least in terms of the early part of the Lord's ministry. Remember, this was early on. This was long before He instituted the Lord's Supper. This was long before the features tantamount to that physical fruit of the vine and that unleavened bread this was not related in time to the Passover. In fact, we find in this a very graphic description of the total being of one's life. Often when you and I think about ingesting something, think about the way the human body does that. You eat some food that you like, be it an apple or a steak, or perhaps you drink some liquid. And you know that the chemical nature of your body and your stomach and the other features of your digestive system can take the elements of that food, chemically break it down, provide it to the cells of your body, which they in turn then proceed to use it to do the various things that those cells are supposed to do. Be it the lung cells, the cells in your brain, the cells and the other features of your body that comprise the muscles, for example. Notice here the Lord said, "...unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you make the features of me and that which I teach a vibrant, continual, and living part of you, you have no life in you. You're not of me. The provision of life that comes by virtue of what the Lord has revealed and spoken is to permeate you and me that thoroughly, that completely, and that fully." If it does, we have the description of the blessings of this chapter. We have the bread of life and the peace that comes with it. We have the sustenance and fullness to carry out the efforts of the Master's work. But if we do not, we don't even have life within us. Look at the next verse, verse 54. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Two things about that verse capture our attention. First, he says, unlike the earlier ones who did not do those things and did not have life, now he says that those who do this, namely drinking his blood, eating his flesh, they have eternal life. Their life has directed upon this earth in a fashion to be pleasing unto God. Their sins have been washed away. And that leads us to the last part of that verse. Something at the last day is going to happen to them, the last day. Doesn't that, among other things, remind us that time as we know it is going to come to an end? Although it seems as if the earth just turns on its axis once every 24 hours and things just look the same today as they did yesterday, there is going to come a time when there's going to be the last day. Things are going to come to an end. The closing saga is going to be sung, if you will. And when it does, we notice something amazing. I'll raise him up. Now, everyone's going to be raised in a general resurrection. The Lord taught that in John 11. But we notice something unique about those who have eaten his flesh and drunk his blood. Their lives have been properly directed. And on that day, they'll be raised not to die a second time at the second death, but they'll be raised to die no more. Raised to live forever in the marvelous abode of that sweet refrain of heaven. Raised up at the last day. I'm reminded of that scene in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 13 to 17 of that chapter, Paul in writing to those brethren spoke about that day when the trump of God will sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised. In fact, Paul made sure to comfort those people by saying, We shall in no wise prevent them. We won't get in their way, for the dead in Christ shall rise first. Don't you want to be in that number? I know we all do. The dead in Christ will rise first. This morning, as we have discussed a bit about the bread of God and its attachment to belief, We've been challenged so remarkably by what our Lord preached. This was a direct sermon from the lips of the Master Himself. Today, let us personally search deeply and ask some questions like these. Are you and I following Jesus for just the proverbial loaves and fish? Are we expecting just something physical from Him, or do we follow Him because we love Him and we understand what He's done? He gave His life for me and you. He's the only way to heaven, Acts 4.12. We might also notice this. What about an ongoing basis? Are you and I eating His flesh and drinking His blood every day? Do others see in us what they should see? I hope that they do. I trust that we each will have that desire. Today it is always true though that there is a time of invitation and a time of soul-searching opportunity. If you find yourself this very day separated from Him, you are not eating His flesh nor drinking His blood. Why not make a change in that so that, by the way, in a few moments, you can partake of this Lord's Supper and do so with a smile on your face, knowing what it all means. If you have never rendered obedience to the gospel call of invitation, you must believe Him to be the Son of God. There's no question or option to that, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, no choice in that matter, Acts two thirty eight. You must confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, commanded of, of us in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, commanded, as you and I have noticed in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If today you would have a desire to, in fact, participate in those events, obey that gospel, what a sweet, sweet day it'd be for you. We'd be honored to celebrate with you. If you have begun that walk with Christ, but you haven't been faithful, others know about the shortcomings in such a way that you would wish for them to know your change and direction in life. Notice we're told, confess your faults one to another. If you know of things you'd like to confess and beg God to forgive you, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. As you think about the bread of God as we close this lesson, I hope that we each can partake of that bread in which Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If today you need to come forward, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.